Um, before we begin, I need to address an issue with the very first verse of this chapter. Uh, because as you have your Bibles open and you look at it, unless you're looking at an ESV, uh, you very quickly will get confused when you hear me reading from the ESV. Because every major translation says something pretty different. And so rather than distracting us from the reading of the chapter and uh, the sermon after, I want to just deal with it up front. Here's what the ESV reads. Uh, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, it goes on. Here's the King James Version, or the New Kings James, both have this. Uh, Saul reigned one year. So ESV, Saul lived one year. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. Uh, NIV, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Uh, the issue here is not a major one, but it is a puzzling one. This is what the Hebrew says. If you thought those were strange, this is what the Hebrew actually says. When Saul was one year old, he became king, and he reigned for two years. So you see the issue that these translators have is they, they know Saul wasn't a year old when he became king. He's a grown man when he's anointed and appointed. And so what they, each translation is trying to do is account for this oddity. So the NIV uses the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's where they get he was 30 years old. That's how the Greek rendered it. And that comports with what we read in Acts that says uh, he was 30 years old and he reigned for 42 years in Acts. It says that he was king for 40 years, so that seems to make some sense. But even that doesn't really write because he's, if he's 30 years old in this chapter, he's fighting alongside his son, who is also a leader in the army. Well, for him to have a son that's that old, he probably would have to be older than 30, at least 40, probably. So there's trouble with that. Uh, what the ESV and the King James are both attempting to do is, is say something about the passage of time uh, from the previous chapter to this one. Uh, they're saying... After either two or three years, what we're about to do took place. Um, at any rate, the Hebrew text that's come down to us is just a little too sparse on details to make a, a complete sense of it, and that's why various versions attempt these different things. Some have also just thrown up their hands and sort of given up. Uh, the RSV, the uh, Revised Standard Version, called by one Old Testament scholar the most courageous tran translation of a biblical verse ever made. This is what they have. Saul was blank years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for blank years over Israel. Um, so we don't, we don't know everything that's going on here, um, but the important details are clear, and I want to just read from you from our confession so this doesn't cause any sort of crises, existential crises here. Uh, this is chapter 1, section 7. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded in some place or another that not only the learned but even the unlearned, in a due sense of the ordinary means, that means as they read the Bible, can attain a sufficient understanding of them unto salvation. So that's what we believe. Uh, so don't worry that we don't know all the historical details here. The important details are clear. Saul was king. Saul's king, and chapters 13 through 15 are detailing for us um, uh, the early reign of Saul and also the fateful events that take place that um, lead to his being uh, removed from king over Israel. So with that in mind, let's give careful attention now to the first 15 verses. This is the word of God. Hear it from 1 Samuel chapter 13. 
Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people Saul sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. So Saul blew the trumpets throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Well, let's begin considering the context of this uh, story. That's the first point this morning, the context. We begin at a suspense point in Israel's history. Diplomatic relationships with the Philistines are at an all-time low. Um, another armed conflict is inevitable, and that's why we find Saul and uh, with his son Jonathan. We're told he's his son in verse 16. We didn't read that yet, uh, but we know it's his son Jonathan. Uh, have, have gathered a sort of standing army to be prepared for what might come in the future <clears throat> uh, from the Philistines. And Saul has chosen two strategic locations for their troops so that they can stay on top of the Philistine threat. And it's Jonathan, actually, who uh, takes the bold initiative and actually launches an offensive against the garrison of the um, Philistines in the region of Geba, also known as Gibeah. And that's about five miles north of Jerusalem, so not very far away from uh, what will become the, the 
uh, capital of the, of the kingdom. And although earlier in the chapter, Saul was, was pretty picky about his selection of who would be in his standing army, right? He gets 3,000 men. He sends everybody else. You can go home. We got what we needed. You notice uh, after Jonathan makes this attack, uh, he now sounds the alarm. This is verses 3 and 4 for everybody to come out and, and to fight because he's anticipating, and rightly so, that the Philistines aren't too happy, and they're probably going to launch some sort of counterattack, and boy, do they. Look at verse 5 again. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore that cannot be numbered. This is not subtle statecraft, right? This isn't, uh, you did something that we don't like, so, you know, we're going to take out... um, uh, you know, one of your diplomats with a drone strike, something kind of just, you know, a tit-for-tat kind of thing, equal uh, response. No, this is meeting Jonathan's, um, Jonathan's action with overwhelming force, right? This is shock and awe, and it seems to work because what do we read in verse 6? When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for they were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves. It's actually kind of pathetic, right? They're, they're clawing into holes in the ground, and they're opening up tombs. They're, they're hiding amongst skeletons and in cisterns in these large um, uh, uh, water jugs. And some even, it says, crossed the Jordan River, which is not an easy thing to do, and they found the fords, and they crossed over, and they got out of Israel. They went over to the land of Gilead. Where's Saul during this time? Oh, look at verse Uh, 7. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, that is, all that were left followed him, and they're trembling, they're afraid. And it says, he waited there seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. What's that referring to? Why is he there for seven days? What's this time appointed? Uh, Well, let's turn back to chapter 10. Turn to chapter 10, which we looked at two or three weeks ago. Chapter 10 is where Saul is anointed to be king privately by uh, Samuel, And if you remember, Samuel gives him three sort of bizarre um, signs. He gives him these weird things that are going to happen. You're going to run to these people at this time, and you're going to see this and that. And if if these things happen, that's the proof that you really are to be king. And um, when those predictions come true, he's to know that now he's in charge. And then in verse 7 of chapter 10, this is the instruction he received. Now, when these signs meet you, when they occur, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So this is in the fulfillment of that, uh, that instruction in chapter 10. He tells him, you need to head to this particular place. There was some arrangement that the two of them would meet in a particular place at a particular time so that Samuel could offer sacrifices to the Lord. And this was part of the process of, of um, establishing Saul's rule in the land. Uh, this is how the kingship was meant to function, particularly in time of war. Why do they need to sacrifice before going to battle? It's to show that God's actually in charge here, that Saul can't just start wars willy-nilly whenever he feels like it. He's not free to initiate warfare, but he must seek the will of God, and that's what the prophet is there to help him with. 
And so the sacrifices at Gilgal, along with then the words from Samuel where he says, and I will tell you whatever you're supposed to do, that is all, all that together is an indication that God, that Yahweh is actually the commander-in-chief of Israel's armies, not Saul. God is the commander-in-chief, not Saul, not any future king. And so Saul is being obedient, right? He, he heads to this appointed place. He's there for seven days, the appointed time, and Samuel has not yet arrived. Well, the threat from the Philistines is not lessening. Saul's conscripted soldiers are going AWOL. Uh, he feels he has no choice. He, the words he uses there as he explains it is uh, verse 12, I forced myself. I, I felt compelled. I had to do this. I don't want to do it, but I felt I, I must do it. He needs to act. And so what does he do? Saul makes the sacrifice that the prophet was meant to make. Uh, he won't wait for Samuel to tell him all that he should do. He'll figure it out on his own. Uh, he'll get the divine approval that he needs to go to war without Samuel. Uh, sort of like uh, maybe a president trying to declare war uh, without going through Congress. Right? That doesn't work that way, but that's what Samuel feel, Saul feels like he has to do. Um, and, of course, the, the way the narrative uh, um, has it for us, you, you can picture it's just as the smoke is, is rising from the first sacrifice. He hasn't even gotten to the second sacrifice yet. Samuel arrives, right? He's not late, by the way. It's still the seventh day. Samuel arrives and says, what are you doing? And, and Saul tries to explain himself, uh, but he was not patient. Instead, according to Samuel, he acted foolishly, verse 13. And so what's the result? What's the consequence here? Look at verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. If you had done what God wanted, you would have had a dynasty that would have lasted forever. Your kingdom would have been over Israel forever. But because you did this one thing, your dynasty is ended before it even begins. That's the context. And that context leads us to a question. Okay, there's a question in this passage that we need to deal with. Uh, one main question that when you read this story, it's almost it's impossible to avoid it. And the question is this. Is God being unfair here to Saul? I mean, is, is God kind of, isn't he overreacting, right? We want to be, we don't want to be uh, irreverent, but we think, come on, God. I mean, he, it's not like he, he did anything that bad. I mean, he, he was still worshiping you. He was making a sacrifice. He just didn't wait for, for the prophet to do it. And he waits nearly the full seven days. But, but God, he's got reasons to be anxious. I mean, the Philistines, they're encroaching. They're getting closer and closer. And... and He's still, he's still trying to do the best he can. He, he hasn't bypassed God entirely. Just sidestep the prophet. Is it really that big of a deal? One sacrifice, one time. Uh, one little act, and yet Samuel walks in and essentially says, a pox upon you and your family. So, wow. Uh, how would you react if you were Samuel? I think most of us, if we were Samuel, would come in and we'd say, oh, Saul, you messed up. But but I get it. I get it. Don't beat yourself up about it. I mean, we all make mistakes, and I understand why you felt like you had to do what you had to do. Honestly, if I was in your shoes, I'd, I probably would have done the same thing. Are we more gracious than God? Are we more gracious than the God who, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? 
So this scene is one of those instances, and there are a number of them in the Old Testament, that appear to give credence to the claim that the God of the Old Testament is a capricious tyrant, right? The God of the Old Testament is mean and angry. The God of the New Testament is kind and loving. What do we do with this? What do we do with this question? How do we wrestle with this question? Uh, For some of us here, it's probably a very difficult one. Um, And there there are many people who have who have uh, landed in the atheistic camp precisely because of this idea that they come across in the Bible where they say, I don't want a God like this. I don't think God would be like this. Uh, 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 so so uh, temperamental, so cruel. Maybe you've struggled with, with that question as well. And I want to be careful in answering the question. I want to be sympathetic to you if you're in that situation, not just say, well, the Bible says it, so you've got to believe it. There are other of us here today who probably don't think this question is that difficult because that's our answer. Uh, but it is, it is complex. Um, so what I want to do is, is offer just two general reminders about how we all think through these things, two realities about our fallen nature uh, that could be skewing our interpretation of this scene and other scenes like it where we think God is being unjust, where we think God is being unfair, where we think God's being a little heavy-handed. Um, And I hope this will be helpful to you. So two things to keep in mind. The first is this. We have a compromised perception of sin. We have a compromised perception of sin. And what I mean by that is that we are all sinners. So we're compromised in a twofold sense. In the one sense, uh, sin affects our intellectual faculties, so we can never evaluate things perfectly. We can, never know, know, never, we can never know all the facts, and even if we could, we can never evaluate them perfectly. So we're compromised in that sense, but then we're also compromised in this sense. Because we're sinners, we have a bias towards sinners, in that in the main, our first reaction uh, will almost always, almost always be to downplay the sins of others because that's how we wish our sins to be handled as well. So we're going to say Saul's sin isn't that big of a deal. It's a small thing because we know we've done things that are far worse than that. And if this is how God reacts to Saul, well, how might he react to us? It's a conflict of interest. That's another way we could put it. We have a conflict of interest with this scenario because we are sinners. You know, one of the things that made the um, O.J. Simpson trial so sensational um, uh, was the fact about the, of the judge that presided over the case, Lance Ito. Uh, Lance Ito was a, a fair judge. He had a good record and, and all the rest. But in this particular instance, the thing that made things difficult was that his wife was held a high position in the LAPD, the very people that were investigating and, and bringing um, evidence and charges in the case. And so there were people who were critical, I think rightly so, of Ito, arguing that his connection to the LAPD compromised his um, his impartiality. After all, how could you go home every night to a wife that you've upset or potentially made her life very difficult at work because of the way you've ruled in a certain way in the, in the case? So what, what, what happens when you have a conflict of interest? Uh, even in the best of us, it brings about confusion, never clarity. And that's what sin does to us. It brings confusion, not clarity. And here's one of the ways that confusion comes up when we say this kind of thing. Oh, it was just a little sin. There's no such thing as a little sin. But we talk about it uh, a lot, don't we? We say that. If not to others, we say it to ourselves. Uh, We assure ourselves with thoughts like this. Well, at least I didn't do 
blank. Or we say, you know, according to this scene, well, it's not like Saul murdered and pillaged an innocent village. He offered up a sacrifice before God just before the prophet got there. I mean, it's a little, it's a little infraction, such a little thing. But here's how sin works. Sin is an outward action that reveals an inward corruption, and that inward corruption is often far more sinister than we would care to admit. Because what was Saul actually doing? To bypass the prophet was actually to ignore God's word. It was to try to live life apart from God's commands and instruction. And that's what Samuel calls him out on. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 of our text, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Here he is speaking to the commander of Israel and he's saying you haven't even kept the commands that have been handed down to you. God's the real commander in chief and the sin at play here is ignoring God's commands, God's law, God's word and that is always serious. Never small because at bottom it's a rejection of God. To, to ignore God's word is to reject God and to, to tell God that we would rather run our life than him do it. Well, this isn't the first time that it would appear that God had an overreaction to a light offense. Saul off, uh, offers up an unauthorized sacrifice and he loses a dynasty. Adam and Eve take a bite of fruit and they lose paradise and they get death and hell as the punishment. Aren't these just small sins, though? Speaking of the, the sin of our parents in the garden, Wilhelmus well, of Brockel rightly states that the bite of the fruit was the fusion of all sins. It was all there at that moment, right? There was a test in the garden. Would man trust God, obey God, love God, be content with God? A bite is a small act. I get it. That is a small act. But disbelief, rebellion, and treason is not a small act. And that's what their sin was. And that's what every sin is. And that's why we have catechism question 84, of the shorter catechism 84. What does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God, both in this life and the life that is to come. Every sin, not just the ones we all agree are, are bad, but even the ones we don't think twice of. And the reason we don't think twice of them is because we're sinners and we live in sin and we're compromised because of that. We become desensitized to it. John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher, helps correct our thinking. This is what he says, speaking of the sin of Saul. He says, it was not little. Disobedience to express command, though in a small matter, is a great provocation. And indeed, here it is. Listen to this. There is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. That's it. That's it. And he's going to say, in general, what to men seems a small offense, to him who knows the heart may appear to be a heinous crime. We are taught hereby in 1 Samuel how necessary it is that we wait on our God continually, for Saul is sentenced to lose his kingdom for want of two or three hours' patience. There is no little sin, because there is no little God to sin against so this scene is not meant to minimize Saul's sin. It is meant to magnify and maximize Saul's God, his holiness, his glory, his perfection. This is meant to course correct our thinking and to see sin for what it really is, a terrible affront against the majesty of our maker. And it's hard for us to get there because we have a compromised view of sin. But there's a second thing that makes this difficult. The first is that we have a compromised view of sin. The second is that we have a cheap view of grace. 
cheap view of grace. What I mean by that is we don't take sin seriously because we presume upon the forgiveness of God. We tell our sins, or tell ourselves that sin I've committed, uh, you know, that little trans, tr- transgression, losing it on, on the kids, or maybe being short with my spouse, or, or uh, cheating on a test, uh, giving into secret lusts, looking at pornography, uh, being filled with pride, whatever it is, you, you know, that's what God's here for, to forgive me of these kinds of things. So, you know, I don't sweat it. It's God's job to be gracious. True or false? Is that God's job to be gracious? You don't need to answer out loud. Because that's something I really want you to think about and maybe even wrestle with. It's a, that's a hard question. And it's not a gotcha question. It's a hard question. Is that, job, is that God's job to be gracious? We need to be careful here. Because the Bible at times would seem to suggest it is God's job to be gracious. Think of the number of times we find people praying in the scriptures for forgiveness by saying something like, for this is who you are, and this is what you do. This is how Moses prays when Israel is about to be annihilated. Numbers 14, 17 and following. Now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Please pardon the iniquity of the people because this is what you've said. Here's the key. There is a big difference. There's a big difference between pleading upon God's character and presuming upon God's character. There's a difference between pleading upon it and presuming upon it. The former takes faith. The latter takes none. When we think of sin as no big deal because God's in the business of forgiving, we are forgetting what forgiveness costs. Forgiveness is free for us. It is not cheap for God. Think back to that first sin. She took and ate, right? That's the the language uh, in Genesis 3 of Eve, the apple. Think about that scene, and we would all do to remember and perhaps even memorize the the great words of Derek Kidner, Old Testament commentator. This, This is what he says about that. She took and ate. So simple the act, so hard its undoing. God himself will have to taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. That's what forgiveness costs. God himself will have to taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. God forgives sin for nothing less than the death of his son. Do you realize that? I think many of us intellectually, we understand that, but operationally, sometimes we act like a quick prayer or a sign of contrition is all it takes. That's a cheap view of grace. It shows we don't understand what it takes for the burden of sin to be lifted, for the debt of sin to be paid, for the curse of sin to be canceled. In the 11th century, there was an archbishop, famous archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury, who wrote a helpful uh, treatise called in Latin, Cur Deus Homo, which is translated cur is why, Deus God, Homo man. Why the God-man? Or why did God become man? And he's answering the question of the incarnation. Why did that need to take place? And he writes the book as a dialogue between himself and a conversational partner who is a little slow on the uptake and doesn't understand why God had to become man. So he has to keep, Anselm has to keep giving this other monk Um, answers over and over again in in, a very clear, precise manner. By the way, the name that he gave this this other monk was Bozo. 
Um, that is actually where we get that, that name, Bozo the Clown, or you know, if somebody does something silly, you're Bozo. That's from Anselm of Canterbury, because he's got this character who just can't get it. Um, and I want to read a section from it. Listen to this exchange they have. Anselm, tell me then, what payment do you make God for your sin, Bozo? Repentance, a broken and contrite heart, self-denial, various bodily sufferings, pity in giving and forgiving, and obedience. That is what payment I make to God for my sin. And so, well, what do you give God in all of these? Like, what's God getting out of it? Bozo, do I not honor God when for his love and fear and heartfelt contrition I give up worldly joy and despise amid abstinence and toils the delights and ease of this life and submit obediently to him? freely bestowing my possessions and giving to and releasing others. He's saying, isn't that, isn't that a good thing? Do I not honor God in that? And Anselm says, yes, when you render anything to God which you owe him, irrespective of your sin, you should not reckon this as the debt which you owe for sin because you owe God all of these things already. That's what he says. But you owe God every one of those things which you have mentioned. But then Anselm does something brilliant. He says, let's just pretend, though, you don't owe God obedience and um, giving up worldly joy for him and and love and and all these things. Suppose that you did not owe any of those things which you've brought up as a possible payment for sin. So let's inquire whether that could satisfy for a sin, even a sin so small as one look contrary to the will of God. So do you see what Anselm's asking him? Let's say you don't already owe God these things. Would they then be payment for something like you just disregard God one time? And here's what Bozo says. Did I not hear you ask it? (laughs) If you didn't put it to me, I should have thought that a single repentant feeling would be enough to pay for my sin. A single repentant feeling. And here's Anselm's answer, and it's very famous. He says, you have not as yet estimated the great burden of sin. You don't get it. You don't get it. And likely the, true could be, or the same could be true, uh, true of us, that we have not yet estimated the great burden of sin, or some translations have it, you do not yet understand the exceeding gravity of your sin. We think it can be paid by a single repentant feeling. And we forget that grace does not come cheap. It comes at the cost of the death of the Son of God. So those are some things for us to consider as we struggle with this idea of God's reaction to what we might think are small sins. But again, there's no small sin since there's no small God to sin against. Now, with all that being said, we're not meant to leave this passage and think it's devoid of God's mercy, devoid of God's grace, far from it. There is actually the promise of a coming Savior here, and we're going to conclude with that now briefly. We saw the context of the passage. We dealt with the question that's in there, but now see the Christ that is in this text, and it's in verse 14. Your kingdom shall not continue, Samuel says to Saul, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Uh, There's this repeat of this word command throughout the section. Saul, the commander, did not keep the commands he was commanded, so God is commanding now a new man who will keep his commands. Who could it be? Well, how is he described? He's described as a man after God's own heart. Now, that has a twofold meaning. First, on the one hand, it means it's the man that God wants to choose. This is the, the man that my heart is drawn to. Uh, it's as though God's saying that through Saul, you know, you, um, 
or he's saying this through Samuel, that you all wanted a king like the nations, and so that's the king I gave you. It was the king after your heart, the one you wanted. Well, look how that worked out. Now I'm going to choose a king, not by your coercion, but a man that I desire, a man that I will choose freely. And this is David. The New Testament tells us that. Paul preaches in Acts 13, 22. And when God had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. But after my own heart, after a heart, that actually has a second meaning. So first it means the, the one I freely choose, but it also means according to God's face, right? We say of a son, he takes after his father. That means he walks like him, and he talks like him, and he acts like him. God is after the one who will exhibit his heart and his character and his perfections. Well, David does that in some measure, in some important ways, but not perfectly. In fact, David is going to sin in greater ways than Saul ever did, at least as, as are recorded for us in the scriptures. Now the question is, why doesn't he get the kingdom removed from him? And we'll get to that in later sermons. We'll just say now that has everything to do with God's grace and also David's repentance when his sin is confronted before him. But the point is clear. David can't be this one. So who is it? And we close now by turning to Matthew 4, which is really an instructive scene for us in understanding redemptive history. Would you turn there with me? Matthew 4. Uh, here we see God's how all of God's promises, even this one in 1 Samuel 13, they find their fulfillment in Christ. This is the temptation of Jesus in the desert by the devil. And we're looking at the final temptation. Chapter 4, verse 8. And notice um, what the devil is, is uh, tempting him with, kingship. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these kingdoms I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. There it is, friends. This is what God has been after. A him only shall you serve kind of guy. And here we find it not in David, not in Solomon, not in Hezekiah, not in Josiah. We find it in Jesus Christ. Go back the whole way to the beginning. Adam was tested. Will you love me? Will, will you say, him only shall you serve? He was tested in the garden. He failed and he loses paradise. Saul is tested at Gilgal. He fails and he loses his kingdom. Jesus is tempted in the desert, in the wilderness. He's tempted with the kingdoms of this world. And he passes the test. He passes the test and, and he earns kingdom and a paradise. He earns a kingdom that's not of this world. He, he earns a forever kingdom. Friends, he wants you to share that with him. You don't need to earn it, but he wants to give it to you. He wants you to come into it and enjoy it with him. And even he wants you to reign there with him. How can I do it, Pastor? You recognize your sin for what it is and you recognize the son for who he is. You come to him in faith, and you find that all of God's promises have found their yes in Jesus Christ. He is the king that's been promised, the one who will serve God alone. I want you to leave today with the hope that 1 Samuel 13 was affording the ancient Israelites, because, you know, their hope was tied to their king, and their king's going to fail. But here, in this promise, they are being assured by God. It's as though God is saying to them, there is a king who will live for you. There is a king who will do all that I ask, 
And there's a king who will not sin, not even a little. And God is saying to Israel, have hope, take heart, that king is coming. And I say to you today, have hope, take heart, the king has come. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, take the words that we have read and that we've heard and that uh, we trust that you have used and that you would write them upon our hearts, that we would not forget what we've learned, uh, that we would see Jesus as the king that we all need and that we'd bow before him. We prayed in his name. Amen.